Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck Ricans? What the fuck Nicks? What the fucking knots? I know there's a lot more. I keep getting more. I can't keep up with them. You can send them if you'd like. I don't need them, but I appreciate it. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. And quite honestly, I appreciate everything you guys do. I appreciate you listening. I'm constantly moved and grateful for the response I get to this show. I, I, I really don't even know how to handle it. But I was just in Irvine, California. This is Orange County. I took the gig because it was close by. And a, a, an audience filled with free ticket holders is probably about the worst audience that you, that you can have. I mean, I'd rather perform for people that didn't like me where I had to fight them as opposed to people that are like, nah, you know, we didn't pay for it. But nonetheless, out there in Irvine, I had a strong showing of some powerful WTFers that came out to, to watch the show and enjoy the show. And it's just interesting to be in a room filled with people that may not know who I am, which is fine, I don't have any problem with it, that may or probably do have free tickets, and just the sort of weight of that. And then there's a, a little pocket of, of, of true fans who I really appreciate seeing, and I tell you, I'm doing the show for you, and it's just very interesting, that dynamic, because there was a time where I'd get on stage and I'd just hate the whole situation because there were free tickets, it wasn't a full house, and, and it was uh, annoying, and it was a difficult situation. But because you guys come out, uh, it, it just inspires me to to make the show good for you, despite even if you're outnumbered, I don't give a shit. And I really appreciate you coming down with cookies and tangerines and and just the uh, the love, man. I appreciate the love, and I and I really it's really good to see you down there at the mall in Irvine. I swear to God, when you go to that mall down in Irvine, sometimes I've been there twice, and it seems as though they're actually manufacturing the people at the mall there at the mall. I can't. Look, I'm not I'm not trying to spread any hate, but uh it's it's been it's been a little difficult, but I'm glad to be home. I, I have been on the road for months, as you know, and I am just thrilled to be cooking my own food, talking to my cats, standing on my deck, doing shit around the house, just feeling grounded. It's very interesting when you get out there in the world and you're traveling a lot. You get used to it. And it's, it's nice, but you feel completely displaced. And I got to be honest with you, there's a comfort in that. As long as you know that your home base is being taken care of and you don't have to worry about that, there's, there's a comfort in just floating. The old geographical cure thing. It's like out there when I'm out on the road or I'm not at home or I'm far away. Hey, man, all that's, it's a different world. It's a different life. Uh, my other life doesn't really count. And uh, I'm free. I'm free to sit in hotel rooms and, you know, have my room cleaned. Wow, those are the perks, really. But I'm, I'm so fucking happy to be home. And I'm, I'm excited about this episode. I got a few things I want to tell you before we get into the episode. Uh, today's show is Jonathan Winters. And that was uh, an overwhelming thrill for me to drive up to Santa Barbara to, to interview Jonathan Winters. He's 85 years old. And I, and I, was, I was not nervous, but I was overwhelmed and in awe it, it, on a lot of levels. And, and I'll explain that to you in just a second. I do want to get a couple of things out there. I will be at LOLs in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, that's the 13th and 14th and 15th of this month, May. That's this coming weekend. And also, I really want to thank, this is a very thoughtful gift, uh, Lawrence over at rabbitair.com, after hearing the Ed Helms show, sent me uh, a beautiful 
air purifier. Uh, a big old machine. You know, out of concern for my guests, he sent me a uh, a minus A2 SPA 780A ultra quiet HEPA air purifier. It's a big old machine. But I thought that was very thoughtful. He wasn't doing it for advertising. He wasn't doing it for anything other than he's a fan of the show. And he felt bad for Ed. And I guess maybe I owe Ed an apology. But uh, but now I have this air purifier, and hopefully that'll help out with the allergies. So anyways, let's get to this Jonathan Winters thing. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jonathan Winters. I mean, outside of maybe if you're younger, you might know him from the Mork and Mindy show. But Jonathan Winters was one of the – he is – really the original improvisational genius comedians. And he really is a genius. And and when I was younger, there was a time where I went to the Museum of Television Broadcasting. But this is before uh, the internet, before you could get everything online. And I was going there to research Jack Parr because I'd had an opportunity to to you know host a talk show and I I really wanted to do something more along the lines of a of a single topic monologue and I wanted to research Jack Parr who was one of the uh, I think he was the second host of the Tonight Show. So I was up there by myself in this cubicle at the Museum of Broadcasting. Uh, you know, you got it. You had to order like days in advance to see certain episodes. So I ordered a few Jack Parr episodes, and on one of the episodes was Jonathan Winters, and he came out and he did this very flamboyant, peculiar character, and it was clear to see that nobody on the panel. Uh, on the show knew what the hell he was going to do and that was what was great about him is that he would do these characters he would launch off into his id uh, he would pull things out of his psyche that were just baffling and dark and interesting and completely in the moment and he com- he just he was hilarious because just no one knew what the fuck to expect from this guy and i'd had you know one or two encounters with him in my life uh, i think i talked about one on this show where he ba- he basically got me I, I remember back in maybe 95, I was hosting a, a I, I was a man with a mic. I was the guy with the microphone walking around the, I believe it was the uh, Montreal Comedy Festival for Comedy Central. Just the, that guy, the the guy walking around to people who people knew and sticking a mic in their face and saying, how you how you liking the festival? I'm Mark Marin from Comedy Central. Uh, not not proud moment for me, but nonetheless, uh, I, I, I always enjoyed talking to people. So I had this opportunity to to talk to Jonathan Winters. It was outside of a show. And I just talked to Dick Cavett, who's a little kooky. And Cavett is a huge Jonathan Winters fan. And Cavett, and Cavett was in sort of a manic episode at that time. I don't, I don't think it's uh, talking out of school to say that Dick Cavett's a bit bipolar. But uh, I just interviewed Cavett, and then Jonathan Winters walks up, and Dick Cavett loves Jonathan Winters, so he goes up to the sound guy who's holding the, the he's got the headphones. Cavett takes the sound guy's headphones and puts them on as I'm about to interview Jonathan Winters outside, and he's cackling. Cavett is cackling, and Jonathan Winters hasn't said anything. And I'm trying to be respectful. And I walk up to Jonathan, and I said, uh, so uh, you having a good time at the festival? And Jonathan was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great, great festival. And I said, well, have you seen any, you know, new comedians uh, that, that have made an impact on you or, or that you, you liked? And he said, well, you know, I haven't uh, really been able to get out. Uh, you know, the, the wife's back at the hotel. She's uh, a little sick and... Uh, and he, and I was you know locked in, and I just said, uh, "Wow, I'm really um, I'm sorry to hear that." And he looks at me and goes, "Yeah, you know, I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't fly her in air cargo. I mean, you know, there are animals down there, and it's just, it's just not the right thing to do." And Ka- and Cava just cackling, and I you know I was sucked in because I thought he was being honest, and it, it was, but there's such a organic, real element to all the characters he does, and they're all coming from 
some sort of reservoir of 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 darkness and inspiration that I can't even explain. So I'm driving up to Santa Barbara to talk to Jonathan Winters. And I don't know what I'm going to talk to him about. And I didn't think I would have much trouble talking, but I do know that he's 85. And I've got a friend who's a friend of his and said that, uh, you know, some days are better than others. Uh, you know, I've known that Jonathan Winters uh, um, has a, a manic depression. Uh, you know, he, he was a, you know, he's been sober for many years. He's he's had events in his life where he was in where he was hospitalized for his mental problems. Uh, and And before I went up there, my friend Ryan Singer and I had found an old Jonathan Winters album. Uh, from I, I think it was from the 60s called The Wonderful World of Jonathan Winters on vinyl and we were sitting here in my house and we put this album on and we were we were hysterical because he was talking about being in a mental institution and a lot of people think that you know these guys from this generation didn't talk about the things that they were going through or, or didn't do real comedy but he was doing very real comedy, you know, and he was able to people a stage, as they call it. There's a few guys that can do that. Lenny did it. Uh, you know, Richard Pryor could do it. Bill Cosby do it. Where you, you know, you had a guy who could do several different characters and and have them uh, talking to each other uh, through voice. And he just characterizes time he spent in a mental institution, locked down, uh, and it was hilarious and real and completely honest. And I was I was amazed because it's timeless and nobody really listens to the him anymore. And when I talked to him on the phone setting up this interview and he was telling me stories on the phone, he was on and he was doing his shtick. But there was such an it was so organic and it was so lengthy that he, this is a guy that did comedy in a time where people could listen, where they had attention spans and you didn't really know where he was going with it. And then you were sort of there was moments where I'm like, oh, man, he's drifting. Is he going to pull this around? And then you know, five minutes into a bit, bang, he pulls it around, ties it all up. And it was like time travel. Just the cadence of Jonathan Winters uh, was time travel. And when I got to his house, it's just him alone up in this big house in Santa Barbara. He's got a, a, a nurse that stays with him there during the day. And he was sitting there. And I, I don't know. I think the sound quality should be fine. I do have people hold their microphone when I interview them. And he is 85. And he had a little hard time you know, keeping it near his mouth. But I think we're going to be okay with that. But I just want to try to capture something. That 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 was very touching to me. Uh, you know, we talked for about an hour. We, you know, I, I had the the conversation that that I could with him, and then uh, we went to eat lunch because it was time for him to eat. And but his house is filled with little things that he clearly is one of these collectors, where just little you know objects, uh, you know rocks, uh, certain types of animals. It's just not cluttered. Everything is beautiful and clean and set up in a way. But he clearly holds on to things, and he likes to have a lot of little things. And after the interview. You know, he's, he says, come here, I, I, I want to show you something. And we walk down the hallway. You know, his bedroom has now moved into a, to a living room area, which I think they, uh, you know, people do when they get older. And he says, I, you got to see this. And, and all along this hallway are pictures of him in different times, you know, with different actors, of him in the Marines, of him as a boy. And he, as we're walking down the hallway, he points to one picture. And it's a picture of a dog, him and his, a dog as a little boy. And he just is like, I love that dog. And it was so raw and so young and so, you know, I could tap into that. But then we walk into this room where he sleeps and there's a four post bed in the middle of this giant room and all over the ceiling, there's got to be 50 or 60 model airplanes hanging from the ceiling. And he's like, these are my planes. They're great, right? They're just, they're, isn't it great? And it was so pure. And so it was almost... I just, just to picture him sitting, you know, laying in that bed, just looking at these airplanes. It was so young and so, 
that there was part of himself that he held on to and that he's always held on to that is so young and everything else is just stacked on top of that. But the, the momentum of his comedy is, is so exuberant and, and, uh, and, and, and just visionary because he lives in it in that moment. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. But it was, uh, it was really a, an amazing conversation for me to have. And I hope you enjoyed it. So let's listen to, uh, to Jonathan Winters. So I drove up here and uh, listening to regular radio coming out of L.A. and somewhere about 60 miles out, it turned into a Christian station. So this, if I was in the car 10 more minutes, it would have been a different conversation. <laughs> Yes, it would have. A missionary conversation. Well. <laughs> we avoided that one. People have said to me at, uh, on occasion, which is maybe too often at times, but how old are you? And I said, uh, how old do you want me to be? How old do I look? Which is always a dangerous thing to say. Uh, I'm, I'm 85. Oh, my gosh. You're 85. Mm-hmm. Don't repeat it if you can help it. Um, I'm in overtime. Yeah. I had a hell of a first half and uh, first quarter and second and third. Fourth was interesting. Uh, begin to get, you know, it's just like a flashlight. Uh, the light is getting a little dimmer. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm very happy to have come this far. And... Um, However, the stadium's empty, and uh, the coach turned out to be different. He's cross-dresser, and uh, then the cheerleaders are basically guys that were on honor farms but uh, look cute at the game. Uh, my car is being taken by another minority. We won't get into that because I don't want letters or I would be hurt by them. But they're dismantling my car. I can't do anything because I have bad arthritis, so I can't get to them in time. <laughs> That's why I'm looking forward to eventually uh, carrying a weapon of some kind, preferably just a handgun. I don't really endorse uh, semi-automatic weapons unless you're in Iraq or Libya. When you were in the Marines, where were you? I don't remember. Uh, yes, I do, of course. I was. Uh, I went in at seventeen. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese were way down on the list at Pearl Harbor. I didn't get along with either parent. They were divorced, and uh, that uh, didn't seem to matter. They didn't. They didn't like me. I. I often thought of a title for one of the books I was going to write. It was called "I Live in the House of Correction." Because everything, you're not going downtown like this. Yeah, why? Well, you just draw attention to yourself. Well, I'm not getting any here. <laughs> uh, my mother said I was in the Naval Hospital for six months uh, yeah. during the war, and she came on. They thought I was going to die. And I guess that was a good reason for to, you know, see me. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any rate... Um, she came in with my stepfather, and uh, I pulled the sheets away from the bed, and she said, well, looks like you're going to make it. And I said, well, thank you. It's good to see you, Mom. And Joe is my, my, my stepfather, a great guy, by the way, and uh, better than the other two, Dad or Mom. 
But uh, I said, Mother, can you? St- I don't know anybody in Philadelphia. Uh, and I said, could you stay on a couple of days? And she said, I always remember, very much a show business person. She had her own radio show, and yeah. she let you know that. And she said, I have a show to do. I said, oh, I see. Well, if you could just, no, I haven't anybody can replace me. I have a show, and we're going, now that you're going to be all right, uh, this is what the doctor said, I'll see you after the war. Which I thought was an unusual say, I'll see you after the war. Because then, I, yeah, once I got well and off uh, out of Philadelphia, I went overseas. Yeah. And uh, that's another story. I was on an aircraft carrier, the Bonham Richard, which uh, CV-31. There are some 75 Marines aboard. People often wonder why there were Marines we uh, took care of the magazine, which means not life or time. That means uh, small weapons. Yeah. And if uh, in case the old man went uh, berserk, the admiral or whatever, captain, then we took over until we got somebody that was right. Was that a possibility? And that was always a possibility, but it didn't happen. To my knowledge, there was never an incident during the war where the Marines took over. But they were um, they weren't exactly loved because uh, we carried small arms uh, uh, when we were on duty, and, uh, and then when they were, swabbies went ashore, they would always, you know, would check us over, They'd check them over. Why they, did they think the Marines were nuts? Well, a lot of Marines were strange, myself included. A few good men. Yeah. See that sticker? So <laughs> it says a few good men, and uh, USMC Uncle Sam's miserable children. Yeah. But I enjoyed the Marines. I uh, I only made corporal, but um, that's okay. Was I, it a way to get out of uh, of uh, your parents' house? I mean, yeah, you... yeah. They had to sign. They were eager to sign. I never saw two people sign papers so fast. Uh, now they'll turn you around. They'll learn something or change. There's a lot of love there. Yeah. When I came home, it's interesting. I wrote a book. Later on, long after I got married, called uh, Winter's Tales, which are little stories that yeah. are mostly made up. But uh, some of them uh, had elements of truth. One was uh, I wrote about my mother. Uh, when I came home, and uh, I have almost total recall. It can work for you and against you, but yeah, for the most part, it's worked for me. And I... Uh, this is Springfield, Ohio, where she I was born in Dayton, but I I went when they got divorced I moved from Dayton to Springfield and uh with my grandmother and my mother and uh went to the house uh and she said automatically wasn't well, welcome home and you made it uh, How long are we gonna be in the uniform? Well, I was in it for almost three years. I uh, just as soon as I get a chance, I'll change it, okay? See if something fits that's upstairs, if there's anything left in my closet. Well, Chet, there's a lot of work to be done around here. Your stepfather, you know, is uh, slim, is out in the garden and working, and you could get out there and help him now. Well, let me get out of this uniform. Uh, otherwise, there might be a Japanese guy on a hill or something, or maybe an army man shoot at me while I'm shucking corn. This way, I'll have to get in my regular clothes. So at any rate, um, I'm going up in the attic. Yeah. Why? Why are you going in the attic? Well, that's where my little trunk was with my goodies in. 
in the trunk I had some soldiers that uh, I'd had when I was a kid and yeah. uh, had a, a Shakespeare fishing reel. I had some marbles. I had a 12, uh, 12, I'm tw- 20 gauge shotgun or something. At any rate, um, and a lot of toy cars, iron cars that uh, at that time were a dollar a piece. Today, in mint condition, the same cars, arcades and Kentons, can be upwards of well over $1,200, believe it or not. Did you but, save them? Uh, no, they were gone. And I said to my mother, oh, boy, well, I remember this. What happened to my cars and things like that? Well, aren't you a little old to be getting down at 20 years of age to get down on the Persian rug and play with cars? There's a lot of work to be done around here. Ah, it's such a joy to be home. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> well, I knew they were never Nazis uh, and sort of hated Hitler, but I think uh, certainly not my stepfather because he was a great guy, but I think she cheered when the Audubon was finished. At any rate, um, I, I, what happened to, to my cars and things? And she said, we gave them to the mission. And I said, that's okay, but you should have notified me. There's some things that I wanted to keep. And she said, quote, how did we know you're going to live? Oh, my God. And I said, should have put a star in the window when I left. <laughs> but that was the kind of folks I grew up with. It, it's, it's tough to... Uh, really give them any more than a chapter in my autobiography because I don't think a lot of people would believe it. They, uh, verbally, they just, uh, they were on me constantly. And Your I mean, dad too? Oh, yeah. And they uh, just never let up. So it was a, a long and strange warped relationship with these two people. And right? your, your father was, uh, I remember we talked on the phone, yeah. He's, he was a drinker, huh? He was not, uh, yeah, he was uh, alcoholic. He quit when the war broke out, World War II. Never had a drink after that, but became one of the meanest white men I've ever known. Uh, He remarried a hateful white woman, so they were an ideal couple. Yeah. And lived down in Florida. I was always going to send them an alligator and see if he could make it up the stairs and go at him, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm too much of a closet Christian to do that. Right. So how did you come about to uh, to, to start? Now, when you were younger, did you find yourself trying to get away from them in your head? Yeah, I, I, I naturally, I, I just didn't know where to go. I, um, I've always been a dreamer and a romanticist. Uh, Sounds a little strange Mm -hmm. to some people, but I was. I went to a lot of movies as a kid. I didn't think that I'd ever be in movies. I I certainly wanted to be. uh, Saw a lot of Hopalong cast. He finally met him in Paris. Um, When I turned 31, worked for Monitor for NBC. My wife and I went over on the United States to to Europe and to England. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met him in Paris and... I, I was so shy. I, I didn't want to bug him, but I thought, Mr. Boyd, Bill Boyd, William Boyd, and I said, God, hop along. I saw him religiously every Saturday, all day long. And yeah. I didn't get an autograph. It's always bothered me, but I, I just I couldn't do it. I, Did he have anything to say to you? 
Oh yeah, he was. Uh, he didn't. I don't think that he knew me. I introduced myself, and uh, he's a very, very wonderful guy. He and his wife, and we went down uh, the, to the bar and had a couple of shooters. And uh, he was a very, very nice man, and uh, truly a, a great Western actor, uh, one of the best to me, Gary Cooper, and yeah. later on Clint Eastwood and those guys, Henry Fonda. But he was, Hoppy was a great guy. I saw a guy on a horse driving up here. Oh, did you? Yeah, just sitting in the street. I'm like, where Where the hell am I going? He's got in a horse. Well, just uh, who knows? <laughs> this is a strange area here. Yeah. So when you were, you, so you, you started in, uh, how did the, the idea to become a stand-up happen? Well, um, I tell you. I started doing a little bit of stand-up in Springfield uh, in high school, paid off usually in hamburgers mm -hmm. without any kind of money, and uh, did about five or ten minutes in a little local pubs, you know. Mm -hmm. Guys knew me, and I was a uh, character in high school. But uh, my real stand-up started, believe it or not, um, was on the carrier. And um, there were, um, I guess I had just turned 19, and a guy, a naval officer came down. He said, uh, you're a Marine, and we, we, want, we need a Marine to come up here and, um, and do, do, do an act for us of some kind or another. You're always kidding around with us and uh, uh, your character and uh, yeah. no comedy. Yeah, I said there are two thousand sailors. My God, I, are you kidding? They're gonna boo me when I come out. No, they're not. It's according to what you do. Just get up there and you got some. You got some kind of. I didn't really have an act together. I did sound effects. I did yeah. Indianapolis Raceway and sounds of cars and and then impressions of uh, movie stars. Yeah, who were attending the speedway and stuff, but. Long story short, there were 2,000 on the hangar deck. And uh, I got up and did this. And something happened. I thought, wow, man, maybe maybe I have something that something I could use later on. I get out of the service. Maybe, maybe I should go in show business. But I thought, no, this is just some lucky thing. Yeah. So that was the only time I only show I did in the service. Yeah. And I came out and I went to college for a year and uh, I took um dramatics at Kenyon, a small school in Ohio. Yeah. I did stand up there and improv. Yeah. And uh the guy was a professor black and he said uh, winners you got it. Not that many people ever believed in me. I, but Dr. Black said uh, at, at college, I don't care what you do, you ought to think about show business because you're natural. And you, you, this thing, you stand up and you do these stories, just come out of your gourd, man. I've never seen anything like this. And so he knew you were special. Yeah. Yeah. So I began to think, maybe I'm still kind of mixed up. I got married. And my wife uh, graduated from Ohio State with a master's degree in art. And I was at an art museum in Dayton. And she said, uh, 
I think your art's all right. You were a painter? Yeah. But I, uh, she said, you know, you're funny. You're one of the funniest guys I've ever met. Why don't you go down to the Colonial Theater? They're giving away a watch. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay. <laughs> By this time, I put together a little more with my act, not much. Characters? <clears throat> yeah. So I went down and won the watch. Yeah. And then I got a call from two guys, Charlie Reeder and um, Jack Weimer, who were a team on radio and WING in, in Dayton. Yeah. Where I was. And they said, how would you like to be our morning man, our DJ? And I said, my God, man, I... I know Nat King Cole, and I know uh, Oscar Peterson, I know uh, Count Basie, and this yeah. and that, and Frank Sinatra. But what, what, do I, what do you want? What do I do? Just a time and temperature. That's all you have to do. Time and temperature. <laughs> Tell <laughs> the time, temperature, and put on that coal, <laughs> and fill out the log. I see. About the third day, yeah, I started to interview myself. Yeah, there weren't any guests coming into Dayton, Ohio. Six o'clock in the morning, of yeah. any importance. So I said, uh, here's uh, Sir Edmund Bygraves, who's flown a secret aircraft into right field and was kind enough to contact me. I don't know how, sir, um, but welcome. Yeah, I have a couple of donuts and hot cocoa. And, and uh, what was your flight like? It was very treacherous. It was, uh, we had a tremendous amount of turbulence. And of course, flying a secret aircraft, I had reason to believe that I was being followed by Russians or, or Chinese, and I wasn't. As a matter of fact, I wasn't followed by no one except some birds, uh, white birds, uh, seagulls, I think, not pelicans. <laughs> And then, well, tell us, uh, when you flew over Dayton at night, I thought that description before you came on the microphone was, was, was different. What was Dayton, Ohio like at night? Dayton, Ohio. You know, I've flown over Rome and Paris, Kenya, Singapore, Shanghai, <laughs> and uh, parts of Arabia. You know, flying over Dayton is like flying over... Tremendous black velvet carpet, little diamonds over it. Is that what flying over Dayton was like? Yeah. I've seen the switchboard light up. We got a thousand calls in an hour. Who is this clown? Yeah. At Florida? Well, then the manager of the station came up, a man called Art Carnes, and uh, he said, Who the hell are you interviewing? told you time and temperature and I said I'm interviewing myself get over it <laughs> just play that cold no more, no more guests <laughs> well then of course I did try some more guests yeah and that was the end of that career there you had to though right I had to yeah it and, felt uh, too good right it felt good I did a year there then I went to Columbus Ohio for you like the radio though, right? So what do you think yeah. that helped you with it? Because when I was on radio, you get a lot of freedom. Oh yeah, yeah. Just and you it, and the it, mic. Well, it's an imagination too. Yeah. You get to play people, and you wonder what the guy looks like. 
Who was he talking to? And uh, radio, I grew up with Jack Armstrong, and, uh, and we all, I mean, at 85, you can imagine it was Jack Armstrong, Don Winslow of the Navy, um, the Mummers, uh, Orphan Annie, uh, Amos and Andy. All they, in your head. Yeah, and I, I loved radio. I still do. Um, because uh, uh, it's a chance, again, as I say, repetition, but to use your imagination of what's going on. But especially when you're seeing or listening to the guys doing stand-up. I said something in my book, which has, of course, endeared me to writers. I write. Sometimes it gets a little sensitive, and I said, the greatest contribution of sitcom writers on television is canned laughter. Ooh, boy, that makes a lot of enemies. <laughs> uh, but it's true. I mean, I, I was told over my career, look, if it doesn't work, we'll sweeten it. Meaning canned laughter. Um, just get back to the lines, Winters, okay? Yeah, your stuff is a little further out. Maybe a little too smart for the room. Yeah, especially this one. Oh. Um, Did you get, you got that a lot, that you were oh too yeah. smart for the room? Well, I got a lot. I'll tell you what I got a lot. And still getting it, <coughs> excuse me, at 85. I didn't get it in Ohio. I really don't know why. Maybe it was the time. I got it in New York. When did you go to New York? I went to New York in 53. I got it in New York, and I got it in California, and I've been getting it now. And that is this. Uh, not that I'm any magic Christian. I happen to be a Christian, but I'm certainly, you know, not a kook about it or my faith. Uh, I don't bug people about it. I don't lecture, tell them, you better be this or you better be that. Uh, I, I've often said, we're all visitors. We're just passing through. Don't blow the visit. Um, I'm not a preacher. I'm a deacon, priest, rabbi. Yeah. I can only say that my comedy has always been clean. Uh, it's not that I didn't understand uh, Money Bruce, Richard Pryor, Murphy, Robin, Pryor, all these guys. Yeah. But I decided to work clean. Uh, I know you can be funny without being dirty. You can be risque, blue, naughty, dirty. But the, what I'm coming to is yes. people will say over and again, producers, directors, writers, when you're looking at this script, which has got a lot of crap, you know, and say, are you reborn? Oh, I got it the first time. You don't have to dip in a river. I just, I know you can be funny without being dirty. I, uh, Give me an example. Johnny would come in. Uh, this is the difference between Johnny Leno and Letterman and the rest of these guys. Johnny would come in by himself without writers. When you're waiting to go on that night. Yeah. Johnny Carson. And he, I had a reputation. Yeah. He didn't have to worry about me being political. He didn't have to worry about me being dirty. Yeah. Or controversial or getting into racial stuff. Johnny would come in, Carson. And he, yeah. would, he would say, what do you want to talk about tonight? That's simple. Yeah. Well, at that time, my dad was drinking, and we were on a farm in Dayton, outside Dayton. And uh, he was trying to sell the farm. 
had about 600 acres, and it was a cold winter day, and I guess I was every bit of 12, and and uh, a guy called Mr. Simmons, for the sake of his name, trying to negotiate with my dad, who was hungover, not drinking at the time, but I was here are the papers, and I ran in just before they signed the papers and said, Dad, the cows are dead. And then Johnny said, save it, and, and we'll talk about it when we get out there on the air. So this is what we talked about. And I said the, to my dad and Mr. Simmons, the cows are dead. No, the cows aren't dead. They're, well, uh, they're sleeping. Sleeping? 36 of them sleeping? And as cold as it is, Dad, they're dead. Mr. Simmons says, kid, let's go out and look. So I went out, and he said, the cows are dead. My dad said, well, the milk is still good. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, he, Mr. Simmons said, I'm backing off from signing any papers. Cows are dead, the milk's no good, I'm out of here. <clears throat> so he left. My dad now decided he needed a drink, actually, because he blew the sail and I blew it. I thought he was going to do a number on me. Yeah. He was coming in a bad time, kid, a very bad time. At that time, he had a raccoon coat. This is in the 30s, so that a lot of guys had raccoon coats. And uh, he climbed up in a tree in the raccoon coat, and re it was just about ready to reach for a bottle. And Mr. McCutcheon, a, a fellow farmer, came around with a shotgun and shot my dad. My dad fell back into the snow. And of course, he wasn't dead. A lot of pellets in his back, or BBs. Yeah. But uh, I said, Mr. McCutcheon, you shot my dad. He was a rural man somewhat of a redneck. And he said, Whoa, well, I tell you, I seen what I thought was the biggest coon I ever seen. I had to shoot it. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that um, I would talk about. Well, I saw you. I, I remember seeing a couple of uh, episodes. I went to uh, the Museum of Broadcasting and yeah. looking up the Jack Parr show. Right. Oh, yeah. And then just seeing you get out there and uh, and everybody just was like, well, what, what's John going to do? Yeah. And and a lot of times, you did you always know what you were going to do? I mean, well, how does it start? Does it start with the beginning? You knew the character? Because one thing I've noticed about your work yeah. in that you create these characters, but you know they all have a lot of heart to them, and, and you don't abuse your characters. They all have a lot of empathy, and you're able to speak you know, in all types of different you know, points of view. Right, yeah. But, but all of them are, are, are you really love the characters. Yeah. They, they seem like your friends. Right. And these are based on people you knew? Uh, some of them, yeah. 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 And and when you do something like Par, you did something like, I mean, you knew all these guys. So you were in New York in 1953. Right. Who were the guys that were around? Who were you guys that you hung out with? Well, I knew Carney. Art yeah. Carney hung out somewhat with Art. Uh, Where did he, did he start as a stand-up? He started, yeah, on, uh, on radio. Uh-huh. He was with uh, Horace Height. Yeah. And he did impressions. Uh-huh. Impersonation. Funny guy? Funny guy. Oh, yeah, great guy. Uh, I hung out with a lot of artists, too. Painters? Uh, painters, um, so... Did you know, like, uh, Woody Allen, Lenny Bruce? No, I knew Lenny. I he played, was a big fan of yours. Uh, play, yeah, I played Chicago. 
I was at the Black Orchid, and he was at the Maryland. Uh -huh. So we, you know, after each show, run into him. Um, you feel like you influenced him? No, I I say influence. I think Lenny had his own thing. You yeah, know? he really was. Um, Bob Newhart, I I didn't run with him, but I I knew he was in Chicago at the time. Tell you a guy I ran around with um, was Lord Buckley. Oh boy! But see, a, a lot of people don't know him. What a character, him. huh? Oh yeah. Yeah, I could see you guys. Great that, stuff. That must have been nonstop too. Are you great guys sitting stuff. there. Oh, great stuff. He had such a commitment to language. Oh, oh, oh. Nice guy. Great and so far out, man. I mean, but in. Yeah. You know. When you say far out, it's just sort of interesting because you come from a pretty stand, you yeah. know, Midwestern background, yeah, right. troubled childhood, yeah. and there you are at the cutting edge of right. what was changing from, you know, clowns yeah, and comedians right. to stand up. Yeah. Right. Now, did you just take to that? I mean, was there any part of you that thought, you know, uh, who, who the hell are these guys? What well, are doing I, I always admired. I'm not a joke guy. Not yeah. that I didn't admire joke guys. Right. I knew that Benny and Hope and all these guys had made their living at uh, telling jokes and. Uh, that's okay. It just wasn't my thing. I wanted to be different. And I wanted to be different in my artwork, which yeah. I was. Yeah. Um, so you were an artist at heart all the way through. Yeah. You never saw yourself as a guy who I never said goodbye to my art. Right. Yeah, you still paint, huh? I still paint, and I still draw. I'm doing more colored pencil drawings uh -huh, today. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But it's great therapy for me, too. Again, I lost my wife two years ago, and um, it's, a, it's a bit of a... Anybody that's lost a wife, a husband, a child, a brother, sister, it's a pull. Um, because I'm pretty much all alone up here. My daughter, not that far away from him or my boy, but I'm pretty much on my own. Mm -hmm. And uh, not a crybaby. Or, but, but art, like, well, you can understand. Um, the great thing about art, with television and with movies, uh, it's like if you're. That's why I think I chose improv, because you're free, free to do what you want to do. Now you may suffer from it, and you may not be commercial. Yeah. But it's you, and you edit your stuff yourself, and you go in your own direction and say what you want to say. Yeah. And you may, you may, you know. Uh, again, it may go over, may not. You're taking chances, but it's a fun. In the long pull, it's worth it because it's you, not somebody else. Not the other guy can't. People say I can't write for you. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, or four or five guys want to write for you. This and, is you. And there's immediacy to yeah, it. That's it's right. not. It's not just about uh, jokes that's are right. like math problems. Yeah. You know, A plus B equals laugh. Look, that one that's worked. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But when you're out there on the wire and you're, right. just, you're pushing it, yeah. now how much do you think that had to do, like, because it seems to me that you battle a certain amount of darkness and you always have. Oh, yeah. And and I think that when you improvise and you lose yourself in character, you, you, you get out of the dark. Oh, yeah. I think um, with my art, you see, there's again, there's a certain freedom. Yeah. You can paint what you want to paint, do what you want to do. There's nobody there to... You know, grade you, and uh, paint for you, write for you, yeah, perform for you. If it sells, it's a bonus, right? But that's the risk. 
That's the record. Now, because I listened to something recently, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, you know, which record it was. I think it was your third record. Uh, and you, it, it, I was amazed by it because it, literally a few weeks ago, my buddy Ryan picked it up at a, in a record bin, you know, and, and I had a few of the, I have a couple of the records uh, of yours, uh, with the one with the campaign. You're on the, oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one, literally, you opened with, with talking about being in the institution. Right. And you and you somehow or another created a world around your time spent in the institution that was hilarious. And nobody, you know, no one in the room was saying this guy's crazy. Now, what led to the, the time? Because, I, I mean, there's a lot of rumors around that you, you, you went nuts and you, you climbed up the mast of a ship. And didn't do that. Now, how did that get started? I don't know. It's been something that's haunted me all my life because. What year was that? 60, 59? Yeah. And I went down there. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. And it was about Clutha, three-masted old schooner. Yeah. I walked up to the guy. And yeah. I remember exactly what happened. I was in the middle of a breakdown, no question about that. How do you that. know when you're in the middle of a breakdown? Well, you begin to hallucinate and uh, seeing things that... Uh, it's it, and not boozing. I wasn't drinking. How long have you no been drunk. sober? You already sober then? Oh, 52 years. Oh, really? Yeah. When did you stop drinking? I was 31 when I quit, at 58. No kidding, and you were already working as a comic? Yeah. And and it was just uh, taking a toll on you? Oh yeah, it just, uh, oh I think it was my mother and my dad that I was looking for that stamp of approval. Yeah. I never got it and uh, got to me. Sure, sure, and it's a... It's so a, I ended up, uh, but uh, going back to San Francisco, Yeah. I went up to the guy that sold tickets. Yeah. And I said, give me a ticket to go aboard the Balclutha. Yeah. And the guy said, okay. And I said, what you need is a tricornered hat. Yeah. And maybe a parrot for your shoulder. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, you got to have maybe twin Evan roots. Kick this thing over, yeah. and you'll be out there and see it in no time. So then I went over and sat on a flat car. Yeah. A guy called... Harbor Police. Uh huh. Next thing they shift me around, put bracelets on me. I said, "What, what the hell's happening here? You're going to psychiatric ward." Only because I put this guy on. See, that's the thing. So he was a small guy, and you got pissed off, and he called you, and he knew who you were. Yeah. Uh, were you already a star? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the guy knew. You see. He figured I was on drugs or right. high, because anything you do that's least different. Yeah. I mean, if I walk out now and say, sky is full of dirigibles. Yeah. My gosh, I wonder where they're from, you know. Well, you say that to the wrong guy, and you're gone. Uh, not everybody has a sense of humor. But at any rate, they, uh, they took me up, slapped me in there, and uh, my wife flew out from the east. This is the first time? But I never went up the uh, Right. First time, I never went up in the mass. Someone put that in. I don't know who it was. I have a feeling it was a guy, but I, I, I can't prove it. Yeah. But all I know is there's no picture of me in the mass. Yeah. It's funny that, that there's a specific thing that, you know, you did go to the yeah. hospital. Oh, yeah. You were got, uh, but, but the one thing that's yeah. a spectacular event right. that didn't yeah. happen, Yeah, it, it pisses you off. Oh, sure. Yeah. So then... Do you to, wish you would have done it? 
No, no, I don't think so. I, I didn't need that kind of publicity. But two years later, cracked, yeah. and then I went to Hartford, and I was there eight months. What? Did, how long were you in the first time? Two weeks. Okay, so that was just observation. Yeah, yeah. And then what brought on the second time? I. Uh, it's hard to say. Um, still, I think uh, haunted by. Uh, what had happened uh, with the ship, uh, thing that I didn't do this, and back to the parents again. Combination of stuff. When I did my interesting thing about going to Hartford, when I went there, um, they hit me with uh, three things, I say, hit me, you know, drugs, for like no more than 72 hours with Thorazine and Stelzine, which are heavy. Yeah. Numb you. Yeah. And I'm saying, hey, I'm not a violent guy. I got a little violent before because I got scared uh, about going up to this place. And a couple of guys came to take me. The, the white suits? Decked a couple of guys. And mm -hmm. uh, Anyway, I got, got up there and... It's interesting, for eight months, I was on nothing. Because in those days there was no lithium, yeah. no Prozac. Yeah. And I asked the guy, the doctor, I've got to have a label here, what's the matter? I'm not a psychotic, I know I'm not schizophrenic. I'm certainly not catatonic. What? Well, uh, Jonathan, there's no sense in giving you a label because it only upsets you. and. Uh, what do you mean upset me? I'm paying money. This is a private hospital. I wonder what the hell is going on. Yeah. No, I don't think they really knew. Uh-huh. Now, at the end of five months, a guy called my wife down in the neck and said, uh, Jonathan's got a lot of pain in him, and uh, we've got to eliminate some of that pain. And uh, she said, what are you saying? I think we're going to have to give him shock treatment. So I said, Doctor, what did my wife say? Well, she said, if that's what you have to do, maybe then you should do that. So she okayed this. Then I did something I'd never done before. I can honestly say as I sit here, I was frightened out of my friggin' pants. Yeah. Because I knew what shock treatment was. Yeah. I have almost total recall. I go back to when I was four. So I said to the doctor, a legitimate question, what are you erasing? What period? 4 to 12, 12 to 17, 17 to 25. Well, we don't know. We don't know. No, we, what we know is we've got to get rid of some of this pain. So you don't know what you're, what period you're racing. No. I'm, I'm soaked. My hands, I'm scared to death. I need that pain, whatever it is. I need that time.
So <clears throat> I made up a story, mm -hmm. hoping it would work, and it did. I said, we didn't talk about what I did in the Marines. We should talk about that. Okay? I was in demolition. It blew things up. Yes, I said I have a couple of friends that would visit you. What do you mean, visit me? Well, it would be just the one visit. Mm -hmm. That was enough. So I didn't get shock treatment. Oh, that's amazing. But I got an extra three months. And how did you make that okay? I came came home, and April 1st, Stanley Kramer called me from Mad World, and uh, Eileen said, it's Mr. Stanley Kramer from Hollywood. I, I'd just gotten home. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Kramer, I... Uh, I got to think about this thing. Eileen said she was right. If you don't take this film, John, you'll never work again. And I said, Mr. Kramer, when do you need me? Get your luggage together, get your family. You'll be working on this thing for six months. I want you out here as soon as you can make it. And that was the story of coming back. Interesting thing for what it's worth. I worked on Mad World for six months. Mm -hmm. Or get psychiatry, and it shrinks, any kind of medication, and I had no problem. Because you're busy. Wrapped up in the part. Yeah. But I was so high on working in my first picture and, and with this cast of people, and Burl and Rooney and all of them, you know. I couldn't wait to get to work. Yeah, you worked. Everyone was in that movie. Yeah. When you got there, were you the kind of guy who entertained everybody? Oh yeah. Milton Berle. Yeah. Mickey Rooney. Oh. Uh, Dick Sean. Yeah, Dick was. Dick, was, I've always said, if you've seen him. Yeah. One of the great talents. Yeah. He's a, just a genius. He did something else. He, it's, it's a terrible thing that, like Phil Hartman died yeah. too early, and a lot of these guys, and of course Dick. Uh, he could dance, he could sing, he was funny, yeah. actor. Yeah. He had it all. Yeah. Isn't it amazing when you're in show business, when, you, when you're when you right there next to him, even though you, you guys are yeah. friends? Yeah. I just noticed this recently. When you're watching somebody perform, you know, in a movie or whatever, yeah. or just doing stand-up, or you're on a dais with yeah. him, just to see that focus oh, and yeah. to have that close a seat, if you yeah. love it, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To see somebody turn on that juice. Sure. I know that uh, a lot of people... You know, respect you for it. I mean, Robin Williams always speaks very Robin, highly. Yeah. He's been a very nice guy to you. And uh, Robin said, uh, you're my mentor. Yeah. I said, don't do that. Yeah. I said, in Ohio, they think that's a salve. You <laughs> say idle. They yeah. get that right away. Does he still talk to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Sure. Do you, now, when you guys uh, did, Rob, uh, did Mork and Mindy. Yeah. Now, when he improvises, it seems to me that when you guys do it, that, you know, you, you, you have a cast of characters. Yeah. But you don't know necessarily what they're going to do. Right. Is that how it works? We stuck amazingly close to scripts. On the Mork and Mindy. Yeah. And a lot of times, um, you know, they cut stuff out. Of course, I, I played the baby and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I know. I feel strange as a baby. Yeah. I'm big and everything, yeah. and I, no baby is this big. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> what happened? Is it is it some kind of goiter thing, Daddy? You should tell me. You're from out there somewhere. So, in, like somehow or another, you're the guy that uh, remains standing. Yeah. And you have all these memories, and you have this clarity of mind, and and you know when you sit up here. Do you do you end up, do you entertain yourself with the with what happened? Do you do you find yourself uh, nostalgic? Or? Oh, I talk to myself. I tell people that uh, not a question of playing doctor. It's just to me it makes a semblance of sense. Yeah. There's a lot of talk. Cancer is one terrible thing. It's hitting everybody. Another is Alzheimer's disease, and I said I don't think I'll have Alzheimer's for. Who knows? But I come at eighty-five. I should have had it by this time. Yeah. But you have a choice. I always tell people: uh, don't be ashamed of it. It's where you do it, why you do it. As an example, if you don't drive your car, the battery dies. So you better turn it over every once in a while. The same thing with your gourd. You know, you talk to yourself, um, uh, Mr. Delavier, you're um, uh, an artist, and I uh, understand you're having a one-man show in the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, what kind of art do you paint? Well, uh, I paint, uh, I just throw the paint at the canvas and call it different things like downtown New York, uh, Harlem, uh, the Empire State Building, uh, animals in a tree. Uh, I don't see these things on the canvas. In other words, you just sit there and, and, and do this stuff, and it, it gets your mind going, mm -hmm. uh, and then you edit again and say, well, come on, you, some of this is funny, but then you've got to, to shift to a zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Dr. Odlinger here. Dr. Odlinger, <coughs> excuse me, you, um, you, uh, are interested in, uh, in the animals and, and releasing them. Is that right, eventually? Yeah, I, uh, I, as a kid, I enjoyed circuses and things like that, and going to zoos <laughs> and seeing giraffes and, Elephants and zebras and monkeys and gorillas. But lately, I've had terrible migraine headaches about, about them. Migraine headaches about them? About the, I'm talking about the animals. Because they have headaches. You see a gorilla do this with his paw, you know? He's either thinking about a banana or he's had a migraine. Uh, I've talked with animals. You have talked with them? <laughs> Easy. No, you, you're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. And you're not to make fun of me. I have the strength of that 700-pound gorilla. You want to test me? Well, what, what, is, what is the idea? My idea is there to go in uh, sometime soon with a settling torch and uh, release the animals from captivity and let the elephants run through the streets and 
the zebras and the gorillas and the monkeys and the birds and everything, and free them of their terrible captivity that the public has placed them in. Mm-hmm. Well, this could be a terrible thing. A lot of people could be hurt. Uh, think how they feel. And put an elephant in a 12 by 12 thing and uh, throw a basket of fruit to him. He didn't like that. Would you like that? No. Not an elephant. Take a look at yourself. You're a fat pot. Easy, easy. I've had enough now. All right, when do you hope to do this? I never saw my, I never saw my game plan. Uh, sometime after uh, after uh, Memorial Day. What's happening with your hand? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but you just... And that's how you entertain yourself. Entertain yourself. Oh, my God. How long have you, have you, have you been doing that? Because you talk about this darkness that you come from. Yeah. I mean, was that always the relief? And then yeah. when you started to do show business, you, you would literally just sit by yourself and run these dialogues until you found something funny by yourself, and then you bring it up there. Yeah. How, do you, how did you stop the breakdowns from coming? Because it seems to me that like, if you work without a net, that you could easily go back out. Well, I, um, it, it's a difficult thing, thing to explain. After the success of Mad World, and mm-hmm. I'm going on doing some movies, and keep in mind, I'm married 60 years. Mm-hmm. This gal going through being an alcoholic for 10, and then... Uh, How bad did that get? Oh, it got bad, yeah. Like every day, shaking? Not every day, but uh, the road was rough, and uh, I was only, I wanted to get home. Yeah. Um, and uh, had a great gal, and, and then to have uh, booze, and then to have breakdown and but we hung in there yeah and uh, we both uh, loved each other and, yeah. and depended on each other and yeah. my one thing I I don't wear any medals if anybody gets the medals it would be my wife but one thing I didn't do I don't know how I did it to tell you the truth not that I, I didn't go to the track I didn't get into drugs got into booze do you know a lot of guys that went down with the drugs? Why? And did you know a lot of guys that went oh, into Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I never put us in debt. Yeah. My payments are always there on the house and stuff. And once you get any kind of a problem, alcohol or drugs, or they go together, lots of bills. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you're gone. But I, I was sick. And... Um, I was sick when I, I, that's when I quit drinking. I just, I went to AA and I went like seven days a week. Yeah. I, I do believe this. It's a strange thing to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always true, but it's very hard to find a competent psychiatrist, man or woman, to treat you of your problems. Because mm-hmm. they don't know. They don't know. The other thing is this. I, it's a harsh statement, and a lot of those shrinks would jump on my butt right away. Yeah. 
But I don't think they're the bulk of them, not all of them, uh-huh. are that dedicated. Yeah. They don't want to get you well, man. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't get the flat in London and the trip around the world. Right, right. Out. Yeah. They get you on your feet in six months, they're out of work. Right. I think that's probably true. And people go, you know, every week, day in and day yeah. out. Doc, uh, what's the matter with you? I don't know. I, I'm depressed all the time. Stop crying. Stop crying. Can you do that now? You cry every time you come here to the office. I know. I know. I'll try. Stop it. Why do you think you cry? I'm unhappy. It's an unhappy world. Take a look at it. Libya. Afghanistan, Iran, China, Philippines, here. It's not a happy world. Not everybody's happy. There are some happy people. I'm happy. I'm here to try to make you happy. What would make you happy? I don't know. You know, you're 47 years old. You're living off a trust fund. Why don't you think of finding a job of some kind? Streets in cleaner, a guy in a hallway, a doorman, something. What is your contribution other than crying? You made me cry again. Stop it. Well, I'll get something. We'll try Monday. Monday, Monday. How many Mondays? Five years you've been coming to me. Now, you called me last night. Hmm? You're listening? Yes. What, you know what time it was? 2.30 in the morning. Said you were going to kill yourself. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Why didn't you kill yourself? I don't know. I just... I don't... I'm going to tell you. Don't you ever call me at 2.30 in the morning. I, if I if you call me, I want to hear a bang. And that's it. Or some kind of scream. <laughs> now, here's a list of ways to kill yourself. There's a revolver with six shells in it. Tuck that in. Put it in your mouth. Ooh, ooh, there you go. Pull the trigger, and chances are you're going to go. Your garage, where your father and mother have a garage, get down there. Turn on some music and shut the doors, and you'll you'll go out that way. Drive the car off a cliff. <laughs> on fire in seconds. Pills, OD. These are cyclopropane. Fifty. <laughs> out. Bye bye. Oh, you're endorsing my death. Uh, you know, forty-six years old. Let's go back to that. And you haven't done anything except sit on a white seat and take a dump. That's what do you think I want to do? So far, before you came in here to get the seat, they told me I'm not considered about a BM. It's what you got in your gourd. Now are we going to find a job Monday?
What are we going to do? I don't know. Get out. Get out. I'll see you uh, next Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Stop crying. <laughs> see, to do that, oh, Jesus, I'd be arrested. <laughs> sure. He endorses death. Or, yeah. That's not how they work. But the dark side. Yeah. To yeah, the dark side of this one. Yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta. It's the only way to disarm it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Now you know we we open this thing with the, with you interviewing yourself in the fifth, in the overtime. In the overtime. And that that's not how this interview went. <laughs> this was good. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Winters. That was Jonathan Winters, and Mr. Winters. Boy. Uh, I didn't Johnny. know if I should call me Johnny. All right, Johnny. Uh, I've been talking to Jonathan Winters, and uh, he just got done talking to himself. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's it. That is my uh, conversation with Jonathan Winters, and it was a true honor to spend that uh, that time with him and, and have lunch and, and just uh, be in the presence of a true genius, a true comedy Buddha. And uh, I want to thank him, and, and uh, I, I, you know... I can't even explain how amazing that was. Uh, let's get one of these in. Pow! Whoa! I just shit my pants. JustCoffee.coop, available at WTFPod.com, or you can go to JustCoffee.coop. And please go to WTFPod.com. Get on that mailing list. Buy some new merch. We got the Cat Negotiation shirt up. We got mugs. We got some posters there. And also, I want to encourage you to do this, because this is one of the only ways you can get some of the episodes if you don't get on the app. Now, you know we have the WTF app for free on iPhone, iPod Touch, uh, iPad, and the Droid, and you can upgrade to a premium and have access to stream every episode of WTF. Now, as always, the the most recent 50 are always free. But if you go to WTFPodShop.com or you do a search on iTunes for WTF Premium, we've got a lot of those great episodes that are only available there if you want to download them. We've got the Carlos Mencia episode, Robin Williams, Dane Cook, David Tell. Uh, we've got uh, some of the live episodes that we did at Comics that were always exclusive. We've got Ben Stiller, Judd Apatow, Parts 1 and 2, Louis C.K., Parts 1 and 2. Uh, we're going to be slowly putting more of those shows back you know, up on these, uh, on these outlets, uh, WTF Premium on iTunes or WTFPodshop.com. Go to uh, PunchlineMagazine.com for up-to-date comedy news. And I really, I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate you listening to the show. I, 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 I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm always moved, you guys. I will be in San Antonio at LOL. LOLs. LOLs. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, May 13th, 14th, and 15th. Oh, I am happy to be home. All right, I'll talk to you later.